book of 2 Timothy, chapter 3. 2 Timothy and chapter 3. Pull it up on your Bible app, or you can look on the screen with me. 2 Timothy, chapter 3. Today is, is different in this respect. Normally, we would spend our time unpacking one passage of God's Word. And we're not going to do that today. We're really sort of looking at a topic. I'm going to survey a number of passages, but we will start in a little while in 2 Timothy chapter 3. So hold your finger there or keep that open in your Bible app. And let's first ask God for His help today. Would you join me in asking for the Spirit's help? Holy Spirit, we thank You for how You've already been meeting us together. Would You fill us now as You command us to be continually filled with the Spirit. Fill us, we ask. Lead us, we pray. Strengthen every single heart for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we, we recognized the 500th anniversary of a German monk named Martin Luther nailing his 95 to the castle door in Wittenberg, Germany, 1517, 500 years ago last Tuesday, an event that sparked what we call today the Protestant Reformation. So what we're going to do these next four weeks is take four weeks to talk about what are called the five solas on your screen here. Four weeks to do those five, and that'll make sense as we go on why it's four weeks instead of five. Christ alone fits into uh, each one, to be sure. Today we're going to begin with sola scriptura, or, or scripture alone. Scripture alone. Let me say from the outset, though, our, our goal here is in no way to disparage the Roman Catholic Church. If you are coming from a Roman Catholic background, like I do, in no way seeking to offend just ask for understanding the, the historical background of these events we call the Reformation. The historical background is a conflict with the late medieval Roman Catholic Church. So the Catholic Church 500 years ago. But I want to acknowledge, and I hope you do too, that Protestants, Catholics, and those in the Eastern Orthodox Church are all under the, the big umbrella of the Christian faith. We hold some, some massively important truths in common, like the nature of God, that He is spirit, that He is everywhere equally present and distinct from, separate from creation, that He is all-powerful and ruling over everything, that He is holy and just and good and loving, that He has always existed as one God in three persons. And we certainly agree that the divine Son of God took on our humanity, was born of a virgin, that He lived a perfect, sinless life, that He died on a cross to take away our sins and then rose bodily from the dead, has ascended to the Father's right hand where He currently reigns and from where He will return. We agree about massively important truths like those and others. But there are real differences between us, as I think we would all acknowledge, including on this issue that we call Sola Scriptura, or Scripture alone. 
think about this in three pieces. Three aspects, okay? Three aspects of this idea of Scripture alone. Here's the first. Let's consider first the issue behind the slogan. The issue behind Scripture alone. See, after Martin Luther posted his 95 theses, just inviting debate, really, he kept putting out documents as he kept getting resisted. And these documents were wildly popular and really ticked off the church authorities. And so eventually what happened was the Pope issued a papal bull entitled, Arise, Arise, O Lord, Deal with this Wild Boar. And the papal bull condemned Luther as a heretic, and Luther responded by burning the papal bull publicly. Now you have to realize, this was not a day of religious toleration. That, that didn't enter into people's minds, really. Disagreement with the teaching of the church was seen as kind of a dangerous disease. It was dangerous spiritually for people, and dangerous politically because political unity was seen as tied with religious unity. And so, the political ruler of the day, this of a vast portion of today's Europe, the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, finally steps in. It's interesting to me. This thing, the Reformation's been just gaining momentum and gaining momentum, and Charles V, he could have squashed it early on, but he's been fighting the Ottoman Turks, and he's been at war with the French, and so he didn't give attention to all this until finally he says, this is messing up my plans. Let's have a council that I'm going to chair. Let's have an imperial diet in the city of Worms. And they summon Luther to this diet of Worms in 1521. And there, the moderator has a stack of books written by Luther, and he asks Luther if he is ready to recant and renounce the heresies in these books. 25 of them. And Luther courageously, boldly says, I wonder if I could have some time to think about this. Could I sleep on this? You've got to just realize the pressure of the moment. If he's found to be a heretic, he can fully expect to be hunted down and executed—that's what you deal. But what you do with a dangerous spiritual disease like this? And so he spends the night with friends, praying and reading the Book of Romans. Arrives the next day, and again the moderator confronts Luther: "Will you recant and renounce all your writings?" And Luther, in a barely audible voice, says, "Well, my books." Are divided or can be can be divided into three different groups. One group relates to matters of faith and life and surely can cause no offense. A second group, he said, quote, inveighs against the desolation of the Christian world by the evil lies of the teaching of the popes. To which the emperor shouts, No! But Luther goes on. A third group of my writings are attacks against individuals, and sometimes I give into abusive language, and for that I beg forgiveness. The moderator 
challenges him again. Answer candidly, without horn. Do you not, do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? Which Luther famously replied. And we have this as a slide. Since then, your majesty and your lordship desire a simple reply. I will answer without horns and without speech. Unless I am convinced from scripture or by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Now, did you hear the main issue there? It's in that word authority. I do not accept the authority of popes and councils. My conscience is captive to the word of God. That, I would say on this issue, is the heart of the matter. Many elements we could talk about, but the heart of the matter, the core issue, is this issue of, of authority. Now, to understand this, let me give a little more background. The Roman Catholic Church had, in Luther's day, and, and largely has today, still a, a three-pronged approach to authority. Greg Allison likens it to a three-legged stool. One leg is called Scripture, our, our written Word of God in our 66 books, and the Catholic Church would add a group of books called the Apocrypha. The second leg of the stool would be tradition, which they think of as oral teachings handed down and preserved in the Church. A third group, a third leg, rather, of the stool would be the teaching office of the church, popes and bishops as the authorized interpreters of scripture, a three-legged stool. In contrast, Allison says the reformers' approach to authority could be likened to a single marble column, maybe holding up a statue, a single marble column labeled scripture, the written word of God in its 66 Book. So the question is, what is the authority structure that God intends for us? Is it a three-legged stool, scripture, tradition, and teaching office, or one marble column? But it's a little bit of a trick question. Before you answer that in your mind, realize this. We want and need... Christian tradition. The church over centuries has hammered out things like a clear understanding of God as triune, one God, three persons, and hammered out a clear understanding of the person of Christ, one person with a human nature and a divine nature, and the church has distilled those crucial truths into historic creeds like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. We do not want to say, as some Protestants have said, we do not want to say, I have no creed but the Bible. That's foolish. Those elements of Christian tradition that I described are critical guardrails to keep us from swerving off the road and into the abyss of various heresies that just get recycled over and over and over. And 
Secondly, realize this. Secondly, realize this. God ordains authorities over our lives, certainly through civil government and, and in the church. He calls pastors, elders, to lead and feed and shepherd his people with his word. So we do not want to reject all tradition or reject all authority. That's, that's being a spiritual anarchist. And, and they existed in the Reformation there. And it was ugly. The question really is, what is our final authority? What is our ultimate, final authority for faith and practice? That's the issue. What is the highest, most ultimate authority for what we must believe and how we must live before God? That's the question. A three-legged stool or a single marble column as our ultimate, final authority. Well, to answer that, we should turn to Scripture itself. As people who believe the Bible, let's turn to Scripture itself and see the claim, the claim of Scripture alone. Let's see the claim of God's word here in 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3, Paul, the apostle, is in prison. He knows he's about to be executed. And so he's passing on to his associate Timothy crucial last instructions. And notice what he says about God's word. Beginning of verse 14. But as for you, Timothy, as for you, continue what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, the scriptures. Notice, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now he says, all scripture is breathed out by God and, and profitable, useful for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It's almost this Swiss army knife. It just gets all this stuff done. Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. Notice that the man of God or the messenger of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, did you catch the nature of God's word in verse 16? All scripture, all well, the written word of God is, is breathed out by God. It might be that Paul invents a word here. It's been exhaled by God. He's talking about our Old Testament. But you can certainly apply that to our entire Bible, Old Testament and New. The Apostle Peter calls Paul's writing Scripture. The Apostle Paul calls Luke's Gospel Scripture. The Apostles knew God was adding to his written word through them Jesus' authorized representative. So it's not a stretch to apply verse 16 to our entire Bibles as we have it today. It's all breathed out by God. In other words, it's all of divine origin. Carrying, therefore, the authority of God himself. Let's say say next April, you decide that you should not have to pay income tax anymore. Steve Farrington seeks to persuade you otherwise, but you just said, 
I don't think I should pay taxes anymore. But you know you should submit to civil government, as Scripture alone teaches. And so what do you do? Well, you sue the IRS. You take them, you, maybe you bring up this case in federal court of, I don't know, San Diego. I don't know where that is, but local federal court. But you, you sue them first in the federal court of, let's say, San Diego. And let's just say, hypothetically, you lose that case. I'm sure you've got great points. What do you do next? Well, you appeal to the next level. The federal court of, I don't know, the western U.S. or something. Wherever that is. Take it to the next level. You appeal to that court. And just let's say, hypothetically, you just happen to lose that case also. What do you do? You appeal to the United States Supreme Court. And let's say they take your case. And let's say, hypothetically, the Supreme Court rules against you. What do you do then? You don't do anything. Why? You submit to that ruling because they are the final authority in the land. They are the ultimate authority over the country in legal matters, and that's what Scripture is for you. The spiritual supreme court for our lives. But different in the sense that it never makes mistakes. It carries the very authority of God, such that there is no higher court we appeal to for faith and practice, such that to obey Scripture is to obey God Himself and to disobey Scripture, to disbelieve Scripture, is to disobey God Himself. And not only that, this passage tells us that this authoritative word is a sufficient authority. That's also important. A sufficient authority for us. It, it's all we need for what we must believe and how we must live before God. It says in verse 15, Scripture is sufficient for salvation. It will make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It says in verses 16 and 17, it's sufficient for Christian life and ministry. Profitable, useful for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. That we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It is a sufficient authority over our lives. That does not mean Scripture tells us all we want to know or even all we need to know about everything. It does not tell us, for instance, how to fix the plumbing in our homes. I wish it did. My wife wishes it did. She wishes I knew how to fix the plumbing in our home, that I could read my Bible and figure that out. I can't. The claim is not here is all you need to know in life. The claim is not you will never need to or never can supplement God's Word with other sources of knowledge or discovery. The claim is this is our final authority for what we must believe and how we must live. And I, I don't want to just look at this passage. I want to I want to survey this just so we deepen in this conviction in our hearts a little bit further. So think about, you can just look on the screen at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 1. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 4. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them. Do them that you may live. Verse 2. You shall not add to the word that I command you. You shall not add 
nor take promise, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. You kind of see the point there. Do not add to the word I give you. Do not subtract from the word I'm giving you. If there are parts you don't like, that's too bad. You can't take your knife and cut those out. You can't rip those pages out, God says. We don't have that right. It's his word, not ours. Or we could look at beautiful passages like Psalm 19. Psalm 19, verse 7, which says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise and simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. You see how the psalmist here piles up synonyms for Scripture, for God's Word, law, testimony, precepts, commandments. It's kind of like saying the whole enchilada. And look at, what, uh, look at how he describes it. Perfect, sure, right. Pure. Ask yourself, is this how I think of God's Word? Our hearts left to ourselves, our hearts naturally rebel against authority. But look at how sweet this perfect, pure Word from God should be, friends. Look at how sweet this is. Notice what is offered to us. It revives our souls. You need that? I do. It makes us wise. It rejoices our hearts. It enlightens our eyes. Only God's Word can do that for you. Nothing else is perfect, pure, right, and pure, having that transforming effect, reviving you, making you wise, giving you joy in your soul. And there's so many other places in the Old Testament we could look at for very similar ideas. Let's skip to the new, another important passage where the Apostle Peter writes, the Apostle Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, And we have the prophetic word, more fully confirmed, to which you would do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now verse 20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation by someone's own invention. For prophecy was never produced by the will of man, but notice, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He's speaking really here to the, the means of God giving us His Word. He says, says, in effect, again, Scripture has a divine author, rather, divine author. Yes, there were humans involved, but they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit such that we have in this word, God's word. It is of divine origin, carrying the authority of God himself. So, this book allows no rivals. And we see that in the last book of the Bible as the Apostle John writes in the last chapter the last book of the Bible, Revelation 22. I warn everyone who hears the words of this, of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And they're pretty serious plagues. <laughs> you don't want these plagues. 
verse 19, if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life in the holy city. Do you see the echo of Deuteronomy 4? Don't add to this word. Don't take away from this word. Now, this applies specifically to the book of Revelation, but by implication, by implication, we can certainly apply this to all of Scripture since this is the very last book of our Bible, the, the bookend, as it were, of the 66 books. And so to add to Revelation, you're adding to the Bible, and God warns us very sternly, don't do that. in all of these passages there's no there's no other final authority mentioned I realize that's an argument from silence but as one person has put it it's a deafening silence there's a deafening silence in God's word about any rival authority rivaling his word as a full final ultimate authority over our lives. It is our Supreme Court, friends, a single marble column for what we must believe and how we must live before God. But what difference does that make? You could easily say, Tab, we're dealing with stuff 500 years ago. I have a hard life. My job's not going so well. Things are hard at home. My body doesn't feel well. What is my need of this scripture alone? Let's think about those words. What is the need of scripture alone? What's been said, and I think it's right, there are three other possible sources of your theology. Three other possible sources of what you believe about God. And they are tradition, reason, and experience. Probably the other alternatives are some form of one of those three. Tradition, reason, and experience. And we need, we need Scripture alone to be the final authority over all things. We need Scripture alone as the final authority over human tradition. It's a big issue in the Reformation, and I still need it today. We have our traditions. And that's not necessarily wrong, but we have to be careful. We can have certain practices become for us the right way of doing things. The right way. The right way, let's be honest, the right way to raise our children. The right age for a young lady to put on makeup. There, there's a right age for a girl and a guy, a, a guy and a gal to, to begin dating. There's a, there's a right way, a right way to educate our children. There's a, there's a right way to dress modestly. There's a, there's a godly hemline, and it's right. It is the burqa. Full down to the ankles. There's a right approach to music. There, there's, a, there's a one right appropriate beat of music that you should listen to. That, that has been. There's a right approach to social media. You know that, don't you? I hope, I hope you're aware. I hope you're feeling that. 
There's a right approach to alcohol consumption. There's a right way to do it. There's one right, best way. And listen, there are biblical principles that speak to each of those issues. There are. And what we have are practices that apply principles. We have personal practices that apply biblical principles. We need those. The problem is when we enshrine our practice to be equal in authority, in effect, with a biblical principle. That's when we get in trouble. We enshrine our personal practice such that it begins to have some authoritative rule and binds our conscience instead of that biblical principle. Jesus addressed this in his own day. In Matthew chapter 15, there's a dispute about the tradition of the elders, as it's called. The disciples are not washing their hands before they eat. And this is not an issue of hygiene. It's an issue of ceremonial practice to please God. So these practices had become equated with biblical principle. These practices have been enshrined as the right way to do it. And Jesus denounces this in the strongest terms. He says, you hypocrites. He quotes the prophet Isaiah. In vain do they worship me. Listen, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He's saying human tradition, which we will always have, must be submitted to the authority of God's word. There's more at stake here, actually, than you perhaps realize. Michael Kruger, in a very helpful blog post recently, he said the following. Just listen closely. Hatful. He said, to allow human tradition to rule the church is to rob people of their Christian liberty. Catch that? To allow human tradition to rule the church is to rob people of their Christian liberty. Only God through his word, can bind the conscience of the believer. To do otherwise does not bring freedom, but tyranny. Humans make lousy gods, he says. Then he says, only in regard to divine law can it be said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is what scripture alone can do for us. We can lift some burdens. Soul might be burdened right now in ways that God does not want it to be. Scripture alone takes you back to Jesus and says, Jesus, let me obey God and your grace and obey God and his word, but not have my conscience bound to mere human tradition or application practice. We must have our consciences bound. We need, secondly, Scripture alone as a final authority over human reason. First, human authority. The final authority now over human reason. In the early, uh, early 1600s, legend has it, might be true, that a guy named Rene Descartes climbed into an oven-heated room 
came out saying, I think, therefore, I am. And that is associated as sort of a, uh, as I understand it at least, a watershed moment for what became and what we now call the Enlightenment, such that mankind is now the measure of all things. Now we decide what is true, not God. Now the primary authority or the ultimate authority over us is us, <laughs> ourselves. And I want to tell you, this is my favorite form of idolatry. This, I am my favorite object of worship. True? And I have really struggled at here, in this arena at times, where I have, in effect, demanded that God explain something. I have demanded that God explain things in His Word that I found season where I thought I was losing my mind. I don't know if you can relate to that. It's a real issue for all of us. My favorite idol is my own understanding. Now, I'm not saying don't use reason. I'm not saying be irrational. I'm saying is your reasoning, is what you decide your final authority for what is true. This is the air we breathe through. I want to specifically speak to our young people. I think you're the most vulnerable. Growing up in a day where the constant message from movies, TV shows, social media would be, you have to be yourself. You have to be true to yourself. You have to do what makes you happy. And listen, no one else can tell you what that is. You're hearing that message all the time. So, we hear that two men or two women love each other and want to be together sexually and even marry each other. What's wrong with that? They're being true to themselves. They're doing what makes them happy. And my upright, uh, sorry, uptight, <laughs> uptight pastor has no right to tell them what to do. Now, don't, don't do what I'm not saying. We want to be a church. We pray to be a church that welcomes and reaches out to with good news those ensnared by homosexuals. We want to. I hope we are. I really hope we are. A safe place for folks who are struggling with same-sex we're all struggling with something, friends. I hope we're a real safe place for to share. You know, I, I struggle with that. And we just come alongside and we love and pray and help. We're all struggling. But young people, it's a question of authority. What will be the ultimate authority for you in these arenas? And we want to be, we want to be like the people in Acts chapter 17. When the Apostle Paul and Silas go to a place called Berea, and they're teaching in the synagogue about Jesus, and here's what it says of these people. Quote, these Jews were more noble, more noble than the others. Why? They received the word with all eagerness, listen, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. That's what you must do with the messages you're receiving every day. 
Examine the scriptures daily to see if these things are so. And if they're not, we submit to the word of God. I'm not saying withdraw into a Christian fortress. I'm not saying withdraw into a Christian subculture. I'm saying be an ambassador for Jesus. Be salt and light in the earth as you examine the scriptures daily. That's what transit looks like to make sure scripture alone is the final authority over human reason. Scripture alone is the final authority of the human experience. The human experience. I think the first two are big. I think this is the biggest. Human experience. Today, the biggest authority, I think, is what you feel. What do you feel? That's what's true. You feel it. It is, brother. You've got to feel it. And it is. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying that emotions are somehow unimportant. Your emotions are part of being created in the image and likeness of God. Listen, your emotions are a God-given gift. They're just not meant to be a God-given authority. So we say things like, feel angry. I feel angry, therefore it is right for me to unload my anger on you. I feel anger, and that's your problem, not mine. Why? Because what I feel is what is real. And the Bible says, well, it's a little more complicated than that. <laughs> you have to ask why you're angry. Why are you angry? Is it, is it a righteous anger? There is such a thing. Or are certain desires within you becoming demands, as James 4 puts it, such that you are angry, sinfully out of your heart, as it typically is, almost always for me. See, friends, what we feel should not be the highest authority for what is real. We must do what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 4 when he's fighting the spiritual battle with the devil, and three times he does what? Three times he says, it is written. And quotes the book of Deuteronomy. What's he doing there? He's saying, the word of God defines reality for me. And I do think that is, that is a great sign of a growing Christian maturity. As incrementally, but increasingly, the word of God is defined Defining reality. The Word of God defining what is real for you in your life. So when we feel like God has left me, when we feel like God has lost sight of me, we feel like God is being unfair or God must not care, when we feel like God does not love me. Friends, in times like those, Scripture alone is absolutely crucial for you. Because your spiritual Supreme Court says, no, you are greatly loved by God in Christ. Your spiritual Supreme Court says, no, as a believer in Jesus Christ, your sins have been paid in full. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You see how faith and joy are the result. Scripture alone defining what is ultimately 
meal for you. In other words, in other words, Scripture alone is not just a slogan. Don't think of it as a box my church checks off on some doctrinal list. Either, friend, either Scripture defines what is the good news of Jesus Christ, either Scripture defines how to be right with a holy God, or something else is defining that for us. That could be tradition, could be reason, could be experience. It needs to be Scripture for us, does it not? It needs to be the Word of God. Think about, think about the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 1. He says this. He says, if an angel, if an angel from claiming to be from heaven shows up and he says, uh, Great Church of La Mesa, guess what? Guess what? I, I've got the true way for you to be right with God. You guys have been singing about it the wrong way and you've been preaching about it the wrong way. And look, blinding splendor, big old honking sword. You can believe me, right? I've got the right way to be right with God. The true way has now been discovered. Secret knowledge is now unveiled to you by this dude in blinding lights. Paul says, count him accursed. Why? Because you have a sure, authoritative word from God on how to be right with a holy God. And it's through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone. Amen? So you, you bank your eternity on Scripture alone. You bank your soul's present hopes and eternal future on Scripture alone. It's a massive marble column holding up for you God's promises in Christ, which are all yes We can wrongly, we can wrongly interpret it. But we cannot believe it too much. God will never say to you in heaven, you took my word too seriously. I don't know why you did that. He wants you to bank on this word for your present and the long future. Because here you have a sure word about the Son. He says to you and me, believe my word, take me at my promises. I have sent my son to live, die, and rise for 